Hey everybody, I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we're the Vertigo Guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we are looking at Cassidy, Blood and Whiskey. That's a, not Preacher. It's a Preacher spinoff special. Alright, so this is a one-shot. Yeah, and this is, as I mentioned before, my favorite of the... Preacher spinoff specials. Yeah, that's right. Last time we covered Saint of Killers, it was a four-issue series, and pretty grim stuff. Yeah, there are also spinoffs coming down the line here for Hair Star, and there's one for Jody and TC. Yeah, is okay. that his name? Yeah, Jody and TC. Yeah, Jody and TC are going to have one. If you want to um, read the adventures of those jerks. <laughs> so. But speaking of jerks, Cassidy, Blood and Whiskey. Yeah, he's he's a jerk too, but he's he's less of a jerk. This is a more lighthearted story. Yeah, it is. So, much like the Preacher main series, this issue was written by Garth Ennis and drawn by Steve Dillon. Instead of regular colorist Matt Hollingsworth, we have colors by James Sinclair hmm. in this issue. But we, as usual, have a cover by Glenn Fabry. Yeah, this is a grinning Cassidy, sunglasses as usual. And is that a man watching TV reflected in his sunglasses? I, I thought it was a, a female figure, but yeah, there's definitely someone reflected in his sunglasses and, and a bit of a scene there. So the first page informs us that we are flashing back to the good old days. This is when Cassidy was on his own before he met Jesse and Tulip, but not too long before the beginning of the series. Some lovely comic timing on the four panels on this page as we first see a cloud of dust in the distance which resolves into some cars. Oh, it's one car being chased by a lot of cop cars, and the driver of that car is Cassidy. Holy fucking Jesus. Why me? Seems like he knows why him. As the cop car pulls even with his car, he uh, looks into the cab and says, Hey, Sheriff, I fucked your wife last night. The sheriff retorts by drawing his pistol and shooting Cassidy cleanly through the head. Yep, that's a boom headshot right there. Fucking hell, she, she wasn't worth it. <laughs> he drives into a patch of sun and starts burning up. I just want to point out that we have a grumpy, mean old SOB sheriff here, along with a nervous assistant. That seems to be the way that they pair them up in sheriff's departments throughout the South. <laughs> in the verse of Preacher. <laughs> are, are you saying that... Garth Ennis is getting a little tropey here. I was reminded of a Sheriff Root and Kenny from the yes. first issue. Yeah, indeed. I think that parallel is deserved. Yeah, so his arm catches fire and he drives screaming off of a cliff. Just like Thelma and Louise. Is this actually the Grand Canyon or just a canyon? I don't think it's the Grand Canyon. Okay. There'd be more tourists around. Oh, that's a good point. Well, it is the middle of the night. It's dawn. I guess dawn at the Grand Canyon is probably a pretty big hit. Yeah, it's probably a thing. A friend of mine actually visited the Grand Canyon recently mm -hmm. and showed me pictures. And it's like, it's more than just a canyon. It's like, it's just like weird, like, fantasy landscapes <laughs> in all directions. <laughs> it's totally, it, this is just sort of a featureless canyon. Impressive. The, the, the Grand Canyon is much more uh, majestic. Cool. So we cut to deputies searching the crash site. The sheriff knows Cassidy didn't die. Last night, he shot Cassidy four times in the chest with a shotgun. So you get out there, boy, and you fetch his ass back here, and I'll shit a fresh turd in the body bag just to keep him company, and then he's dead enough for me. 
You know, on the next page, we find the deputies leaving for the night, but the sheriff is not giving up. He sits on a rock with his shotgun. I know you're here, boy. You was dead, we'd have scraped you out of that wreck back there like a hash off a skillet. You're here, and so help me Jesus, I am going to finish you for good and nail your hide to old barn door, you wife-seducing potato eater. Now, at this moment, the sheriff is looking out over the little river that's running through the canyon, and we see Cassidy's face looming up through the water. Yeah, it occurs to me that, like, the sheriff doesn't seem to be afraid of him, despite the fact that he knows he's still alive. If he's still alive, you should be scared of that guy. Yeah, that's a good point, especially since he is armed with the very same shotgun. It could be a different shotgun, but he's no better armed than he was when he failed to kill Cassidy the previous night. Mm. Maybe it's a better shotgun. Yeah, that's a fair point. Cassidy lurches up out of the water, grabs the sheriff, and hauls him in. That just seems to be how vampires get it done in the preacher world. No, right? <laughs> so he eats the sheriff. This is basically a cute little scene establishing some of Cassidy's powers in nature. He's a vampire. He's bulletproof. Doesn't yeah. like the sun very much. He's sarcastic. <laughs> you know, he has. He likes to have a good time. He likes to party. Water. It's a Batman cold open. Yeah, exactly. Cassidy crawls out of the water. He's got water dripping from his hair and blood dripping from his teeth. And he... from his brains, which are still exposed. Oh, this is true. Yeah, we know that he regenerates by feeding, and we can see that the wound is improving as he's eaten the sheriff. He reaches for his glasses. Notably, we never see his bare face here, the way he's framed. We and see the says... lower half of it. The, yeah. The jaw. And he but... says, he puts the glasses on, and he says... Fucking groovy. So, two weeks later, he is hitchhiking. Or is it still hitchhiking when you're actually in the car? I think so. Well, he has hitched a ride, and he is riding shotgun with a trucker. Yeah, that's right. He is planning to go back to New York, but he suddenly smells something, and he asks to be let off at the next exit, New Orleans. Yeah, he uh, follows his nose through town. Comes to a door and is told it's open. Enter freely and be welcome. And now we get three quarters of a page devoted to Acarius. Yeah, a handsome vampire with long white hair, an unbuttoned white blouse, and black leather pants. There's candles and a goblet on the table, very gothic. You're like me. They talk. Cassidy reveals that he's never met another vampire except for the bog hag who we met in Cassidy's origin story back in Preacher number 25. I must have smelled you from ten miles out of town. I've never met another, you know. Another one before, except when I got bit, obviously. To tell you the truth, sometimes I thought I was the only one. No, my friend, you are not alone in the darkness. You are like me, a lord of nightfall, piercing veins and drinking crimson, walking in the shadows of the mortal world. Oh, fuck me. I'm sorry. You're a wanker, aren't you? Now, Acarius wonders if wanker is a synonym of vampire, which I think is the closest we will ever get in Preacher to hearing the word vampire. It, it is, yeah. Him saying vampire right here. Yep. It's a marginal case, and it's the only incidence of the word vampire being used. Are you taking the fucking piss? It means you spend too much time playing with yourself. You've got your head stuck up your own arsehole. Wanker. Noun. One who wanks. Am I getting through to you, do you think? We have a nice panel here of Icarius rolling his eyes. All right, look, I'm sorry. I know this is your place and everything. It's just a bit of a, well, a disappointment, really. How so? Because I've been wandering around the world for three quarters of a fucking century, watching all me mates dying or getting old, and now I finally find someone else who's going to live forever, and, 
Well, it turns out he's a bit of a prick. That basically sums it up right there. Icarius is impressed by Cassidy's age. Cassidy, we know, is old as the century, mate. Icarius has only been undead for ten years. He offers Cassidy a drink, <laughs> which Cassidy <laughs> thinks quite reasonably is going to be a drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cassidy drinks from a goblet and then spit takes. This is fucking blood! Don't you like it? About as much as I like eating raw steak, Jesus fucking Christ! What I'm saying is, there's a time and a place, you know? Have your beer! I have wine. Dry white. <laughs> so the two of them sit, uh, getting drunk together, and Icarius tells him that there is basically a secret society here in New Orleans. Right, a consolation for the loneliness that they both endure. A society that covets the vampire life. And Icarius will give him an introduction. At next nightfall, I will take you to them. But come, the sun is rising. Our time has ended. We must rest. I have a place prepared for you. My Icarus voice is exactly the same as my Morpheus voice. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> You're a worker, aren't you? Turn the page and Cassidy says, I'm not sleeping in a fucking coffin. <laughs> so, uh... He says, uh, give me a sleeping bag and I'll sleep on the couch. <laughs> and he's perusing Acarius's bookshelf. The Necronomicon, nope. 120 Days of Sodom, the Satanic Bible, Frankenstein. No Elmore Leonard, I suppose. Bollocks. Well, uh, the following night we find Cassidy at a bar where he meets a cute blonde bartender. This is D, although we are not going to find out her name this issue. Okay, um, so she is a character we will see again. Yeah, for sure. She's quite important. I want to point out that Cassidy is here drinking Turbo Dog. What's that? That is a beer that is popular in New Orleans. Okay. Yeah, she talks about how she's taking night classes, and Cassidy says, For one awful moment there, I thought you were about to say you're at the University of Life. Hmm, <laughs> no. This is a horseshit-free zone tonight. Icarius catches up. Cassidy says, Not anymore, it isn't. So, yeah, they kind of immediately hit it off and have an instantaneous connection. And she looks a lot like Tulip, don't you think? Uh, that is true. That is a fair cop. I guess she's a fair bartender. So Icarius drags Cassidy away to meet the secret society, embarrassing him in front of the cute bartender. I like his Batman outfit. And that, I think, is the only time Preacher crosses over with the DC Universe. Well, Cassidy wore a Batman shirt at one point. Oh, yeah, that's right. I wonder there... if she likes Cassidy's Batman outfit. <laughs> there, are, there are Batman references. This isn't the only one. So as they're walking down the street, Icarius is yammering on about the vampire life. He, too, was grabbed by something that jumped up out of the water. Right. That is a time-tested method. Yeah, it seems to be working real well for vampires. As he talks on, people begin to laugh at him as he's now talking to himself. Cassidy has slipped away and joined a crowd yelling, Show your tits! Yeah, there's a girl standing up on the balcony of a nearby hotel, and there's a crowd of men below chanting, Men and maybe one woman on the far left? Oh, yeah, maybe. Anyway, she acquiesces. Icarius asks, Why do you tarry with these mortals? They are nothing. A distraction. Sure, I like a good distraction. So, they open... Sort of a trap door, and are making their way down to meet this secret society. When Cassidy happens to ask if Acarius goes around killing people at random, 
Right, Icarus says that he's not a serial killer. He only drinks from drunks and fools who stumble in my way from off the stupid paths they follow. So it's safe to say you've sucked a few pricks in your time then, eh? Yes. No! <laughs> um, I also want to point out in this scene, when they were leaving the woman on the balcony, Cassidy shouted that she should rub haagen all over herself. In the next scene, we find Cassidy eating ice cream. Yes. He says... Couldn't get out of me head, mate. I had to stop and get some. Showing that Cassidy has basically no willpower. No impulse control. Well, yeah, that is an interesting thing it shows. It also shows that he eats human food, which we already knew. Very true. But I assume it might be the first exposure Icarus has had to this information. Right. So we get a full-page spread of the dank basement that these guys are hanging out in. Yeah, we see basically a bunch of scrawny goths screwing or cutting themselves or just just hanging out in what looks kind of like an old church. Yeah, I mean, it's very bare. It might have been once like a church cellar or something. There's all these columns and architecture and stuff, but there's yeah, no... Yeah, the high arching ceiling. Right, but there's no other decor around really except for candles that they've provided themselves and shitty old couches. It kind of looks like something out of the Matrix. A little bit, yeah. Especially with all the people in black leather. Yeah. There's also a pentagram in blood on one wall and a spider web drawn in blood on another wall. And people are... Some of the people are cutting themselves. Yeah. And sometimes other people are licking it up. And as Acarius shows up, everybody is eager to greet him. Everybody loves Acarius. He's basically the norm of... <laughs> The norm of this basement. Of this basement, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely his fan club. Almost everybody greets him using his name. One guy says, well met. One person says, Lord Icarius. Icarius says, what do you think? Wanker Central, that's what I bleed and think. And now on the next page, we get our first introduction to Lily, who is also an important character. Icarius informs us that her father is a congressman, so she's connected to political power. Okay, is Lily also a character that we're going to have to hold on to? Yes. Cool. Yeah, Lily is a short-haired blonde in a corset, and when Icarius explains that the person he's brought with him is one of us, she takes even more interest than all the other goths. Have you heard my new poem yet? Perhaps your friend might really like it. I think it's really quite lovely. This is a guy in a leather jacket and sunglasses named Roger. I call it Icarus Becoming Loam Dreams. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, so Roger begins to read from his latest poem. Right, let me actually like do it, and then you can do the Cassidy line. Oh, okay. Trans walking now, a step from element to element. I leave fire, water... Air dust far below. My life-death paradox is all. If being, why so unfamiliar? If gone, why moving still? Now, how did I know it wasn't going to rhyme? Now, I don't know if I'm just crazy here, but when I first read this character, I thought, oh, this is this is Garth Ennis parodying Neil Gaiman. Well, yeah, I mean, the fact that he uses the word dream over and over again really makes it seem that way to me. Mm -hmm. The guy is also very Neil Gaiman-looking. So Lily sidles up to Cassidy and says, Acarius won't drink for me no matter what I say or how I beg. Do you think I might be doing something wrong? 
And as she says this, she's holding up her bloody wrist. Definitely. Next time, cut down the ways instead of across. Yeah, so another of the girls, a redhead with a top hat, asks uh, why Icarius won't bite her. And he says, I don't think you want it enough. You want your fucking head looked at encouraging this shite. But I told you, it amuses me. It strokes your fucking ego, you mean. This pisses off a guy named Mako. Yeah, he's a really burly dude. He sort of looks like he could be the hero of, I don't know, a Shadowrun campaign or something. (laughs) We saw him earlier with bleeding cuts across his chest that uh, another girl was drinking out of. But yeah, he's he's really tough and he um, sort of starts to try and intimidate Cassidy. Yeah, he demands some proof that Cassidy is, is one of them, one of the people of the night, so to speak. And in the next panel, we see Mako flying over the heads of the rest of the Goths. Yeah, after putting Mako in his place, Cassidy grabs Icarius by the ear, come here, you, and hauls him out of there. Yeah, coming back just long enough to stuff Roger's poem into his mouth. How dare you, in front of all of them? Who the hell do you think you are? Icarius calls Cassidy scum and strikes him across the face. Knocking the sunglasses off of his face. And as Cassidy turns around... Oh my god, what's wrong with your eyes? Cassidy headbutts him, breaking his nose. What's wrong with your fucking nose, bollocks? And I think that is probably the first indication, at least in the order we've been reading them, that behind the sunglasses he has worn since he set foot in New York, something's weird. Yes, that's true. And it's not a vampire thing, at least not a vampire thing that's true of ten-year-old vampires. Right, we will come to that. This is actually a reveal that is, I wouldn't necessarily say a big part, but a dramatic moment in the final issues of the series. Hmm. So, it's a ways off. Now, Icarius drops to his knees and begins searching for his contact lens, knocked out when Cassidy headbutted him. It turns out that he wears colored contacts and dyes his hair. Thought I ought to try to look the part. What part? You know, a Nightwalker, Lord of the Undead. What was that for? For talking shite. From now on, you get a clip around the ear every time you act the prick, right? You've been going out about this completely the wrong way. You need sorting out, son. And I'm just the boy to do the sorting. So, they uh, wander the streets looking for a quiet place. Cassidy settles on an old church, though Acarius thinks Holy Ground would kill them. Hang on, I just want to interject to say, yeah, saying that earns him another cuff around the ear. There's an interesting conversation here as Cassidy asks if Acarius believes in God. When Acarius hesitates to answer, Cassidy asks, Let me put it another way. Do you give a fuck if there's a God? Well, I mean... So why are you afraid of that thing? He says, gesturing to the crucifix. Long story short, it turns out here that obviously Acarius learned how to be a vampire from movies and books and spooky old stories. Cassidy informs him that most of the traditionally held weaknesses of vampires are just superstition. It's like expecting to have a bad day because you've walked under a ladder. Did you ever try jumping off a roof and turning into a bat or riding moonbeams as a cloud of dust? I tried the bat thing once. Broke both my fucking legs. Cassidy analogizes this to finding yourself in the jungle and starting to act like Tarzan. As they walk on, Cassidy tells Icarius how lucky they are. The whole world is their oyster, and the only thing they need to fear is the sun. He advises him to just enjoy his life. And then they go to a bar and get drunk. 
Yeah, he reintroduces him to beer, and the two of them get plenty drunk. They deconstruct the plot of Dracula. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And then we cut to the basement where the secret society, who call themselves Les Enfants du Sang, the Children of the Blood, uh, hang out, where Lily says it's been four days and they haven't heard from Acarius. We now find Mako with his jaw in a brace, or wired shut, I guess. Looks like he's drinking through a straw. Suddenly, Cassidy and Acarius burst in. Oi, Enfants du fucking sang. Wankers! <laughs> Uh, they are standing there with their bare asses out, and then they run away. Yeah, bare-assed Cassidy is something I never want to see again, and actually, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to get my wish on that, if I remember correctly. <laughs> more bare-assed Cassidy there to come. Is more, more of that skinny Irish ass. <laughs> I think there is more naked Cassidy before the series is over. Right, they run away. Ikaria says, but why are we running away? Because it's funnier. You know, that reminds me, I saw this featurette with Taika Waititi on Thor Ragnarok. Okay. He was talking about the blocking of the scene where they um, where they play Get Help, where they come up in the elevator and Thor chucks Loki at the guys. Right. And he points out, if Thor throws Loki and then we see Loki on the ground, not funny at all. But we just see Loki pop back up into frame? Hilarious. Yeah. So the two of them are laughing over a beer, and Cassidy says they have too much time on their hands. Leads to poetry. Icarius says he should have drained the goth kids years ago. Cassidy says, they're not worth killing. And that leads him to ask, have you killed? You asked me about that before. I, well, I'm not saying it hasn't happened. But it's not a regular thing. No. Nah, blood's blood, in it. Doesn't matter if you get it from a lamb chop so long as you get your fill. No need for killing at all, really. Unless some prick tries to do for you, in which case you may as well go ahead and treat yourself. I want to point out here, it's nice that Cassidy thinks killing goth kids to stoke your ego is going too far, but his moral high ground is a little shaky. He'll happily kill somebody in a fight that he started because he likes to fight. Well, that's true. <laughs> that reminds me of like what Jane says Yeah, in the Firefly episode. or It's in the movie. It's in, it's in the movie. <laughs> I'll kill a guy in a fair fight, or if I think he's going to start a fair fight. Yeah. <laughs> it's another day, and Cassidy is now reading in Acarius' apartment when suddenly he smells something. The day before midnight, incidentally. And he follows his nose once again to the church, where he finds Icarius has just killed one of the Enfants du Sang. Right, he's clutching the drained body of the redhead in the top hat. She called me. I couldn't resist. It's what she wanted, you see. It's what they always want. They beg and beg and beg. And they're so sure they'll love this life. Mysterious and beautiful and dark. Except I always take too much. There's been others then. Aha! Hundreds! Akaria says you can't change who people are. They like us like this. He looks up to notice that Cassidy has embedded the cross off of the table into his skull. Yeah! He, in a rage, faces Cassidy as if about to attack... And then pulls a header. Cassidy closes the dead girl's eyes. You silly wee bitch. It's interesting to me, this is kind of a story about Cassidy having sort of a bro relationship with this other vampire. It's definitely a story about these two men, and, and frankly all the women in it are kind of either embarrassing stereotypes or set dressing. 
Cassidy doesn't like men who hurt women, but he doesn't really value women either. Yeah, he definitely doesn't. And his bad treatment of the women that he dates is going to be a major plot thread coming out of this book. Right. Icarus wakes up, bleeding from a head wound, and tied to the roof of the church. Morning, Icarus, says (laughs) Cassidy from the safety of a shady window. So I guess he could have gone to, you know, any church or any roof for that matter, but it looks like there is a roof of a church on top of the Enfant Toussaint hideout. Oh, is that where it is? That's my guess. And we see that he's actually nailed his hands to the roof. Right. You can't do this. I'm like you. We're the same. You can't do this to me. You're fuck all like me. You're a self-obsessed, pasty-faced, death-fixated dickhead got up in a poncy suit. You unbelievable fucking bastard. No! Icarus catches fire and explodes as the sun comes up. And where's your wanky fucking accent gone, you bollocks? Sometime later, Cassidy nurses a beer in a bar. You had to go. You were too much of a wanker to live. And maybe you brought back too many bad memories. And I like this too. He continues, and you are right about trying to change people. They like their old shite too much. First sign of madness, says D, coming up next to him at the bar. Yeah, Cassidy is excited to see her. She has the night off. She's just here to pick up her check. She asks if he's moving on. I was on my way east before, but I was thinking I might turn around and try Texas for a while. All sorts of opportunities in Texas. Or fuck it, I might go have a look at Florida, Montana, or Peru. The world's my oyster, really. Busy man. What about tonight? It just so happens I've got tonight off. That a fact. Me too. Fucking groovy. And that brings us to the end of it. So, yeah, that issue is sort of an assortment of unrelated Cassidy adventures. (laughs) Well, so there's a cold open, and there's his introduction to D, and those are framing the main story here, which is the Icarius story. Right. So what did you think about Icarius? His sort of face-heel turn. You know, it's interesting. I think that's kind of a... I think on one level, it's definitely like Garth Ennis taking on sort of the standard vampire. Or for that matter, like the World of Darkness vampire or the Anne Rice vampire. Yeah, or the Neil Gaiman vampire. Sure. If there is such a thing. I would have to check. <laughs> I don't know if Neil Gaiman has ever written a vampire, but he certainly used the uh, you know, the vampire tropes as an excuse to make fun of Neil Gaiman. Well, he's sort of making fun of 90s goths, right? I feel like Gaiman's vampire would be sort of more like Cassidy, more of a realism applied to the situation thing. Gaiman's vampire would definitely have, like, Tupperwares full of blood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that does sound about right. Yeah, but but you're right. There's a whole, like, the whole aesthetic of, like, 90s goth is being being mocked here. I mean, we compared it to, like, the Matrix shadow run. It reminded us of Neil Gaiman. We assume that that's intentional, but we're not sure. This is all stuff that falls into that same sort of cultural moment. Of 90s gothness. Right, yeah. And even though Garth Ennis saw fit to put a vampire in his book, it's not a goth book and Cassidy's not a goth vampire. He's kind of a... God, what do you call it? A redneck vampire? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, he's not like a true blood vampire, but it's definitely like... It's a show about tough southern guys having adventures and he fits squarely into that mold. Yeah, even though he's actually from Ireland. True. But yeah, I, I thought it was 
an interesting sort of character journey for him where he he thinks that he's met someone with whom he can spend some time. And this is a recurring thing for Cassidy. You know, he he latches on to Jesse in much the same way because, he, you know, he's never had a real brother, you know, a real like, I mean, he, okay, he had a brother. <laughs> he had, yeah, well, he had a brother and he, and he lost that relationship as a result of becoming a vampire and he's yeah. been on the lookout for long-term companionship of some kind since then right exactly and Icarus really kind of plays him you know the whole issue is kind of Icarus looking like a fool and Cassidy getting to like lecture at him and instruct him in the ways of being a cool vampire instead of a wanker vampire but Icarus is actually playing him because he's putting on this front that he you know isn't a mass murderer and he actually turns out to be yeah that's true I think Cool, not cool, is the way that it's put in the World of Darkness Storyteller's Guide. <laughs> what, is, what is cool? Cool is a vampire with a trench coat and more than one gun. <laughs> well, okay, if they say so, I think that sounds fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, actually, now that I think about it, Icarus is probably the one they would describe as cool. <laughs> uh, I mean, it could be awesome. It could also be... You know, spectacularly ridiculous. So the, the the aesthetic that they're suggesting there is that vampires shouldn't call attention to themselves. Like Icarus is out of the is out of that mold because he's too goth, too perfectly. I am a vampire. I am a vampire. Right. The world of darkness vampire. At least what they want to see is a vampire who's wearing a suit. Okay. Anyway, that reminds me of so there was a world of darkness book that took the opportunity to to crack some fun at the expense of Highlander? Oh, yeah. Highlander is like the definition of cool. Uh, okay. <laughs> For them. I think I probably have mentioned it on this podcast before, but uh, I have a friend who says that Highlander should be a musical, okay. and I'm convinced that this is a terrific <laughs> idea. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> Look, they sing the Queen songs from the film? That would be one way to do it. That would okay. be one way to go about it. But yeah, we we watched the, mo- the original Highlander movie not long ago, and it's really, really good. <laughs> okay. Like, in a way that sometimes encompasses qualities not normally thought of as good. <laughs> I gotta remember that it, phrase. It's, it's incredibly entertaining. Uh, okay, okay. So what is that, like a, like a very good B-movie, or better than that? Um, you know, it's, I think, I think maybe solving that riddle is a part of the enduring fascination of Highlander. (laughs) Okay. I think it's really the Adrian Paul TV Highlander that is more the target. Because he definitely did have a a katana in a trench coat throughout the series. Okay. I don't know if Christopher Lambert wore that. (laughs) Uh, He doesn't use a katana. He uses a a broadsword, I guess. See, that's better already. But he, like, stashes it in a ceiling at one point instead of carrying it around under his trench coat. Okay. Does he own an antique shop in the film? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, all right. So, we were talking about Highlander for a while now. <laughs> and it was a delight. <laughs> all right. Um, I do think there's another angle, though, that it's important to talk about Icarus with. And that is as a foil for Cassidy. As another facet of Cassidy's character. Now, one of the things that we see with Cassidy over and over, he doesn't have a lot of impulse control. He does what he thinks is fun. Right. So when Icarus comes along to remind him of how much destruction he's left in his wake, 
or what he could easily become. Yeah. Because Icarus himself has just been following his impulses, you know, drinking his fan club whenever he feels like it. Yeah, exactly. Icarus puts on a show of having the whole vampire thing under control, and actually he's he's feeding on his followers, and he's unable to stop himself from draining them to death. Yeah, see, I wondered if that was, like, if he was really unable to stop himself, or if he's just a psycho. That's just the story that he's telling? Yeah, or if he, even if it's not even, like, a story that he's legitimately trying to pass off as true, it might have just been, like, a tongue-in-cheek comment. Like, Mm -hmm. oops, I always take too much. Okay. Aren't I a stinker? (laughs) Yeah. At the very least, he's genuinely unable to restrain himself from using Les Enfants de Song as a way to stoke his ego. Mm-hmm. from yeah. building a cult around himself. Yeah, for sure. So I think that's an interesting reflection on the Cassidy character. I mean, as he appears in this story and as he's going to continue to develop in Creature. Well, yeah, we're going to find out that Cassidy has a little bit of a cult around himself, too. Mm-hmm. Not in the same way. He never has, you know, a goth cult of vampire wannabes. Right. But he does develop, you know, a, a string of ex-girlfriends who yeah. sort of realize... How fucking terrible he is. <laughs> I don't know if you've read that far ahead or not. I have, I'm a little ahead of where we are officially in the comics. Okay. So yeah, I think that's an interesting reflection there. One of the things that he says during his wanky speech that leads into Cassidy saying, you're a wanker, aren't you? Yeah. Is that the vampires are like a dark mirror to humanity. Yeah. <laughs> but he is kind of a dark mirror of Cassidy. Yeah, that's that's fair. And I think... Cassidy is in significant ways. Maybe a dark mirror of humanity is too pretentious. Cassidy is a very human character, though, with very human failings. Yeah, and lots of them. (laughs) And I also think it's really interesting that Ikarius kind of tries to turn Cassidy into a follower, and Cassidy comes along and turns Ikarius into a bro. Like, they have this socket that they put people in, Mm -hmm. and they both try to do it to each other. Yeah, and you referring to their relationship as, like, a bro dumb is maybe a good transition into the misogyny issue that you started to bring up before okay so do you want to talk about that a little bit yeah yeah like the misogyny in this book yeah well it just occurs to me that you know ill treatment of women is clearly like not cool at all in the context of the story but the story doesn't have much use for them well and it just sort of depends on where you draw the line at ill treatment Mm mm-hmm Right? Like, Cassidy gets so offended that Icarus has killed this red-haired girl that he nails him to a roof. Yeah. But he also calls her a silly wee bitch. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And neither Cassidy nor the story bothered to learn her name. And then there's the whole show your tits scene. Yeah, as well, I mean, obviously the setup with D is setting something up for future preacher comics. This but also, it's it's also like Cassidy getting a sexy reward for finishing out this story. Well, I, see, I almost liked that a little bit, the whole idea of, like, D as a relief to Icarus. Okay. You know, that part doesn't strike me as too misogynist because it's like this woman comes along and she's, you know, she's normal and cool in all the ways that Icarus isn't. Yeah, that's You know, fair. with all of his, I don't want to say macho bullshit, but all his... All his pretense and uh, and preening and violence. Yeah, and they form something of a human connection in the brief time that we have between the two of them here. Yeah, and as much as female characters aren't a big part of this book, it is the issue that introduces us to Dee and Lily, mm-hmm. who are both going to be formidable women 
in the future of the series. Okay, that's worth watching out for. Well, let's talk about what we liked about it. I mean, obviously, like we liked the interplay between Icarius and, and Cassidy a lot, but I know why I think it's my favorite Preacher spinoff special. Where would you place it? Hmm. I sort of had a problem with how aggressively grim the Saints of Killers was, as mm-hmm. I think I mentioned in that episode. Yeah, and Saint of Killers is also a four-issue special that maybe could have been a one-issue special. Mm, yeah. I will say, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but I have read One Man's War. And it's a good book, but I don't think it tells us anything we didn't already know. Okay. Whereas this provides really like more insight into Cassidy. Yeah, I think this works really well. As I said, I am a little bit ahead of where we are, and I think that the insight that I get into Cassidy here is really starting to come back, and I really have a feel for the character that's improved by this book. Yeah, uh, he Cassidy is just a delight to read. You know, he's a big part of the reason why Preacher has so many fans Mm -hmm. and why it's consistently remembered as one of the best comic book series of all time. And we're getting a lot of, like, Cassidy's distinctive voice, his distinctive flavor, and we also get... You know, a lot of really good character moments that tell us more about what he's thinking. And as much as, like, he does have bad impulses mm-hmm. and he does have his failings, this book finds Cassidy maybe more so than a lot of the time trying to be a reasonably good person yeah. and actually succeeding. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. It's a little interesting to compare this to the two issues in the main series that we just finished reading, the uh, Streets of Manhattan, I Wandered Away story. And he comes off maybe a little bit more of a motherfucker here, and this is the story that is not him choosing to tell it. Yeah, that's a fair point. I I mean, he's like the sort of 90s idea of like a badass. Yeah. You know? I I mean, he's not like Wolverine or Punisher level badass, but... He's a guy who, he wanders around... And have a single cybernetic arm. He, he wanders around doing what he wants. Yeah. You know, he's a kind of quintessential cool anti-hero. Yeah. But in this book, he actually, like, ends up doing some good. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, his sort of fantasy life of just getting to wander and do whatever he wants, which he obviously loves, and he describes, you know, more than once as just a great life. This is not a book that delves into the dark side of that. Well... A little bit. It, it delves into the loneliness of it. Yeah, though not as much as when he was, you know, telling Jesse his story. And that's sort of the comparison that I think is interesting, is that the story that he told Jesse was one of great loneliness. Yeah. But more in this story, he's kind of rejecting the idea that, you know, that he is, that he is brooding, that he is moody, that his existence is defined by loneliness, even though he's clearly, you know, desperately searching for somebody to plug into his life. <laughs> yeah. And he ends up finding D, mm-hmm. and that relationship is going to have a lasting impact on both of them in ways that we'll see. Yeah, so I think it's a lot of fun. It's definitely a quick read, but it's very layered, I think, and I had a lot of fun with it. Yep, that's good comic books. Well, now it's time for a segment I like to call Hey Sean, Read This, where I blindside Sean with a more modern Vertigo comic book. This week, Sean's going to be reading Effigy Number 1 by Tim Seeley. All right, let's have it. Okay, so you just read Effigy number one. That was published by Vertigo in 2015. Written by Tim Seeley with art by Marley Zarconi. 
Yeah, okay, so this is a book, I mean, we open up on some star cops. Yeah. This is kind of a kids' TV show, and then we cut out of the kids' TV show to some years later where the, basically the, the number two star, not the star of the show, is now a cop in her hometown. Right. And she has a mom who's really not cool with the fact that she's not in Hollywood still, and then there's a murder. Or rather, a dead body is discovered in, in an archaeological dig site nearby, but it turns out to be the body of the number one star on the show. Yeah, and then we get a, a kind of... We get a couple of weird cutaways to, a, to subplots that don't make sense yet. Well, we get a, a kicker of the seemingly the creator of the TV show. Yes. Who's, like, gotten into really weird spiritualism and apparently believes in something called the Everladder. Yeah. And pees on all his royalty checks. Yeah. Well, that's weird, too, because... I see. He says cash, and she says no, a check. And then he pisses on it. The first time I read that, I thought, so it's not money for the kids' show, so we don't know what it is and why he's peeing on it. <laughs> yeah, and then the other, the other thing that was there's a, um, there's a character who's maybe like her stalker, the main character's stalker? Yeah. Okay. And that character sees her on television... And is very excited by it. But we don't know what's going to happen with that. Well, yeah, and she mentions that she put out a sex tape in her past, like, accidentally on purpose. Yeah, that's right. And another thing that I wrote down as worth mentioning is that there's... One page of this is like a confessional. Like, she's talking to the camera. Yeah, that's right. And there's no context for that. She just is. I got the impression it was, like, on a date. Like, she was talking to somebody that she was interacting with personally. Not like an interview, but... Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we don't have context for that, except that that's, you know, how we find out what the sex tape thing was. Yeah. And is there a part where they criticize Miley Cyrus? Can we tell who that is? I thought it was Miley Cyrus. It seems like Miley Cyrus. Okay. Yeah. So this was, this is from Tim Seeley. Okay. Who, you know, we've talked about him before. I think we've reviewed a couple of his comics. He's uh, the writer of Nightwing and Grayson Mm -hmm. and Revival. Did we do the first issue of Revival? I'm not remembering it by name. Okay. He's also the writer of Imaginary Fiends, which we definitely did the first issue of. Yes. On, okay. On the show. Yeah. Um, so we have here another weird cop show. Well, and Revival. Also, the main character is a, a young female cop. Okay. So that's like a sort of recurring Tim Seeley motif. Okay. So I did not like this comic book. I don't really generally care for Hollywood satire, and there's kind of a lot of it in here. In addition, virtually all of the characters are women, and I don't know, there's something... Maybe it's not, you know, the the attempt at writing women that bothered me so much, it's just the fact that the book doesn't seem to like any of its characters. Yeah, there's a definite, like, contempt for characters problem going on here. And this definitely came out, like, after... Revival had started and and ran for a while. Like, Revival, he does a pretty good job of, like, writing, you know, likable female characters with some depth, who are the heroes of the book, Mm -hmm. and who have protracted character development over, like, you know, dozens of issues. Okay, so he's he's done a good job (laughs) writing female protagonists before. Yes. The issue here is maybe more that just, like... He just doesn't like his characters, so that, I mean, the things they say reveal them as vapid, unpleasant personalities. Yeah. I think the main character is sort of sympathetic. The main character is not so bad. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's a it's a pitfall of the Hollywood satire genre. Yeah. That unless you have a 
unless you have sort of an outsider character to be the audience's point of view, you risk sort of having nobody to like. Yeah. And yeah. even if you do have an outsider to be the character's point of view, you've got to give them other likable people to talk to. You yeah, know? that's that's fair. Um, we didn't really get to meet Detective Guy. We saw that he's good at his job, and that's about it. He didn't display a lot of personality yet. He is, you know, it seems like the one who's going to interact with Chandra the most over the course of the series. Right, yeah. Now, I don't think that this ended up running for very long. Okay. Maybe we should have just done Revival. Hmm. <laughs> if some... you haven't done it yet. I didn't realize that we hadn't. You know why we didn't do Revival? Because it's an image comic book. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Off limits forever. Yeah. All right. There's some weird mysticism going on in this, and it's it's not clear in the first issue whether that's actually going to be a big part of the series or whether just just like characters are into mysticism. Yeah, it sort of seems like it will be. We we get more than one character who's doing a sort of pseudo ritual. Yeah, that's right. That we observe. Speaking of mysticism, there's an ad for the Constantine TV show in this issue. Oh yeah, I did notice that. Which sadly marks it as as fitting within to a fairly narrow time frame. First trade is called idol worship. Like, not idol worship, but like idol worship. Idly worshipping. Right, yeah. Yeah, it looks like this book only ran for seven issues. Mm, okay. So, yeah, safe to say that you will not be reading another issue of Effigy? Yeah, the mystery didn't really hook me, and the characters didn't really hook me. How did you feel about Effigy Mound, Ohio, and the Serpent Mound that's at the Effigy Mound? I mean, it seems like that's part of the mystery, I but it didn't do anything for you. Yeah, not really. There's almost not enough to hang on in terms of, like I said, figuring out whether the mysticism is actually part of the story. And it is definitely a body that was found in a burial mound, you know, found in an archaeological dig. And a newly mummified body as well. But, uh... Yep. But I don't know if what we're ultimately going for is going to be just a, a down-to-earth police story or not given that it's tim seeley i would assume not okay but i guess at this point we're not really sure yet but yeah that one's that one's kind of a flop for me yeah it's too bad we can't talk about revival (laughs) (laughs) on on the air we can talk about it off air i guess (laughs) i can read revival and then tell no one (laughs) yeah it's a secret right so when we return to preacher hair star returns amid rumors of war but first, join us next week for Sandman. For a smattering of one-shot Sandman stories, sometimes called Distant Mirrors. Hey, if you like our show, you could check out our website. That's vertigize.blueberry.com. B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you'd like to send us in listener questions, uh, we are actively seeking listener questions to answer on air. You can ask us through our email, vertigize at gmail.com or at Vertiguys on Twitter. We also have a Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash And if you could rate or review our show on the Apple Podcasts app, that would be really valuable in helping other people to find us and uh, growing the audience a little bit. But as always, thanks so much for listening. Thanks, everybody.